This morning, before we dig into the message, I want to give you a, a prophecy update. We haven't done this in a while, but Lord willing, we're going to do it a little more frequently. Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, he said these things would also increase with frequency and intensity as the time drew near for his return. So I want to present a new feature to you this morning that we, Lord willing, will be doing here on a weekly basis called Prophecy in the News. And believe it or not, if you read the right newspapers, not our news media or our news sources, there's a lot of prophecy in the news. Um, we're going to begin with, we're going to begin talking about things rather that are going on around the world and as they relate to prophecy in the Bible. And so we're going to start with a news article out of BBC, the BBC News, which, by the way, is an excellent source of news for our own country. So is Al Jazeera. Believe it or not, Al Jazeera, English-speaking news, is an excellent source of news for what's happening in our country because they don't pull punches. They tell you exactly the way it is. So this falls under the heading of pestilence. Now, there's a new virus out there that the World Health Organization is watching very closely. It's called the nymphavirus. And it has an incubation period, which makes this virus so why they're so uh, concerned about it is that it has an incubation period of up to 45 days. So you can have this virus and spread it for 45 days and not even know you have it. That's pretty scary. It affects animals, a wide range of animals, and so the possibility of spreading this virus becomes more likely, and it can be caught either by direct contact or by consuming contaminated foods. Now, I'm going to read you a scenario that the BBC presented of how this could possibly spread or how it has spread in the past. This isn't something that is coming. This is something that's already here. This is something that's already affected people. This has been around since the early 1990s, okay? So, listen. It's first light in Battenbang, a city in Asenki River in northwest Cambodia, at the morning market, which starts at 5 a.m., motorbikes weave past shoppers, kicking up dust in their wake. Carts piled high with goods and covered with colorful sheets are perched next to makeshift stalls selling misshapen fruits. Local vendors wander in and out. Consumers wander in and out of the stands. Plastic bags bulging with their purchases. Elderly ladies in wide-brim hats crouch over blankets covered with vegetables for sale, for sale rather, and you look up and there are thousands of fruit bats defecating and urinating on anything that passes underneath. This virus, by the way, is carried by the fruit bat. The death rate of this virus is 40 to 75 percent. Now across Different out, 11 different outbreaks of this virus in Bangladesh from 2001 to 2011, 196 people were infected, 150 of those 196 died from the virus. One doctor said this type of exposure, speaking of this market in Cambodia, can lead to a pandemic. And we've certainly heard this story before, haven't we? I said, I don't mean to frighten you here this morning. I truly don't. 
I'm just pointing out that the closer it gets for his return to this earth, the more we're going to see these things. There are viruses out there much deadlier than the coronavirus. There are viruses out there that make this look like a common cold. And so the closer we get to his return, the more political, the more social, the more racial unrest we're going to see. You're going to see more wars. You're going to see famines and sickness and, and earthquakes around the world, and they are going to increase with intensity. And I know we all want to get out of here. We're all crying to get out of here. We're all pleading with the Lord to come and get us. But unless that happens soon, we're going to see a lot of this stuff. And so the answer for us, the only answer for us, is to make sure we're as close to Jesus as possible and stay close to him through this. Listen, I believe this is why Jesus is warning us not to scare us, but to remind us that we need to stay closer to him more than ever before. And always remember that this is not our home. Whatever happens here, this is not our home. Now, the second thing I'm going to address this morning, and the last thing in our news prophecy and the news update, is the mark of the beast. Now, there's plenty of talk about this vaccine, and the vaccine being the mark of the beast. And I certainly believe that is a precursor to the mark of the beast. I'm not saying that this vaccine is the mark of the beast. I am not saying that. I don't believe that it is. You need a beast before you can have a mark of the beast. But it certainly is a precursor. It certainly is preparing us. It's conditioning us. It's setting us up for what's to come down the road. Not us, but those who are here during the tribulation. This vaccine, or any vaccine, has the potential to inject something in us that can be monitored. And so perhaps this is used in conjunction with the mark. The fact of the matter is that none of us truly knows what the mark exactly is. I know there's a lot of pastors, a lot of people out there that say we know what the mark is or this could be the mark. If we're honest with ourselves, we have no idea what the mark is. We could kind of guess with the technology that we have in the world today, but we really don't truly know what it will be. Listen, no one thought this virus would cause the damage to do the things that it's done, but it's here. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But it could be used to introduce digitally some sort of implant into the host. And this vaccine, or a vaccine, certainly could be used for that purpose. One thing this virus has shown all of us is how easy it would be for the Antichrist to take control of a world and force them to do what he wants them to do. <clears throat> now we know from scripture that the mark of the beast will be on either our foreheads or on our wrist. And it's easy to see how we're already being conditioned for that, isn't it? The technology exists for some sort of digital mark, if that's what it is, to be scanned. And I'll, I'll tell you, I got a real eye-opener when my son was in the hospital recently. When I went to visit him in the hospital, on the counter is a, a counter-mounted digital scanner. And before you could go any further than that one spot, you had to stand in front of that digital reader and you put your face in it, and it lined up a square on your head, and it told you whether your temperature was normal or abnormal. Now, listen, how easy, the technology already exists, how easy would it be for that scanner to scan your head and say whether the mark of the beast was active or inactive? Very easy, wouldn't it? So the technology already exists for something like this to happen. All we need now is a beast to put it into use. 
for that purpose. And so, as I've always said, if we're seeing the shadows of the things that will take place in the tribulation, how close is the real thing? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, no matter what's going on around us, no matter what technology exists, no matter where this leads, and we know where it leads, Lord, because we've read the book and we continue to read the book, we know, Lord, that through it all, we place our faith and hope and trust in you and you alone. And that one day, soon we hope, you're coming back for your church. But no matter when that happens, no matter whether we see each other in the air or we leave here before that happens, Lord, we know where our home is and our home is with you. May we stay focused on you and draw near to you all the days of our lives. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So open your Bibles now, if you will, to Revelation chapter 17. We're not going to get very far into 17, but if you would, just open your Bibles there. Now, I do not believe that Satan is a very patient devil. Would you agree? I don't believe he's waited all of these centuries to have a kingdom here on this earth. I think he's at least, if my hunch is correct about Satan, he's at least attempted this several times in the past. After the fall of man in the garden, there weren't very many people around for him to establish a kingdom because mankind was just beginning to multiply. But Satan had already been gathering servants to himself because he was already causing rebellion against man. Between the garden, the fall in the garden, and the flood, about about 1,600 years had elapsed. And in that time span, this is what God said about the earth. Then the, lost, the Lord rather, saw the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Genesis 6, verse 5. So in that relatively short time period, the earth had become corrupt. Man was already rebelling against God. It was also at this same time that the seed of man had been corrupted as the fallen angels were mating with the daughters of man and creating hybrid human beings. The Bible described them as giants. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also, and this is a key, afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So Satan created a rebellion against God, and he used God's created mankind to come against their creator. And he's still doing that today, isn't he? And so far, as I said, this has worked for Satan. This is a strategy and a plan that's worked for him. From the rebellion in the garden, to the rebellion in the desert that led to the flood, to the Tower of Babel, to Babylon, to Rome, to Nazi Germany, to man's continued rebellion against God today, this has all been his plan, his plan and his strategy from day one. Now we've looked at the connection between Babel and today, but I want to briefly touch on it again. And so we're going to look at Babel just briefly, but mainly we're going to look at Nimrod, because I believe Nimrod was one of the first types of Antichrist there was. Now Nimrod was the son of Cush. Cush is the son of Noah. So Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah, and he became the leader of the kingdom of Babel. Now according to Josephus, Nimrod built the Tower of Babel, right? We know that from the Bible. But according to Josephus, the reason he built it 
was in case God had a mind to drown the earth again. And he built it so that the tower would reach so high that the floodwaters would not kill man or white man out again. And that he would avenge himself and his forefathers against God for destroying his forefathers. So the reason Nimrod had his servants build the Tower of Babel was to protect mankind, as hard as this is to believe, against another flood that God would send. The reason the flood came in the first place was because of man's rebellion against God, and that's exactly what Nimrod was doing. He was leading men to rebel against God. So no wonder he was concerned about another flood, because he was practicing the exact same thing that led to the first flood. But if Nimrod knew... What God had said, he would have known that the rainbow was the sign that God would never flood the earth again. Now, also according to Josephus, he, meaning Nimrod, proceeded to have his subjects not ascribe their strength to God as if it were through his means that they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage, their own strength, which provided their happiness. So Nimrod wanted the people to not only rise up against God, and to make a kingdom for themselves, but also to break free from God, telling them that they could be happy in their own strength. They didn't need a God over them. And that was his intention from the very beginning. And that's how it began. A man-centered land that soon became a kingdom, a kingdom ruled by this king, Nimrod, and the people eventually became not his servants, but enslaved to him and his kingdom. Just like the psalmist wrote, right? The nations rage against God. And they plot against him in an attempt to break free from him, to break free from his cords. Psalm 2, right? Just like the armies of the gather on the field of Armageddon. Nimrod believed that he could create his own army, his own kingdom, in rebellion against God. To come against God, to break loose from God's, from the cords of God, break, to cut those ties. And he would be more than a king to his servants. He wanted to be their God. So he wanted them to break free from God and turn to him. And so let's look at some very interesting facts of Nimrod that you might miss just reading through Genesis 10. Nimrod, he began to be the mighty one on earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. In the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Iraq, not Iraq, Iraq, but E-R-E-C-H, Akkad and Kana in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kala, and Rezin. Between Nineveh and Kala, that is his principal city. So Nimrod just didn't begin Babel. He began a kingdom for himself. Nimrod, it says, became a mighty man on earth. Now that word mighty in the Hebrew is gabor, and gabor can mean giant. That word is used to describe the men of old, the men of renown in Genesis chapter, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. We just read that. The mighty men of old was, were known as the hybrid children of the interactions between the fallen angels and the daughter of man. That word renown means conspicuous. In other words, they were conspicuous. They stood out because they were giants. It's easy to spot Shaq in a crowd of normal-sized people, right? And that's what it was like back then. So Nimrod was much larger than everyone else around him, and perhaps that's why they asked him to be their leader. 
He was bigger and stronger than anyone else in the area. Now, you would think that all the giants were wiped out in the flood, right? But Genesis 6, chapter 4 says there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterwards. We know of Goliath, right? In the land, and the giants in the land of Canaan. We know that Goliath had brothers. So there were still giants in the land even after the flood. But what I find most interesting is the empire that Nimrod built. He founded at least eight cities, including Babel, which later became Babylon. So Babylon, or Babel rather, and the surrounding cities were that first attempt to build the kingdom on earth by Satan. And, and it's possible, it's very possible, that Nimrod would have been our, the first Antichrist. So Satan's been at this for a long time. The second city we want to look at, or nation we want to look at, is Babylon. Now, there were other nations that rose to dominance before Babylon, like Egypt and Assyria, but none were quite like Babylon. Now, that name is thought to derive from an ancient Arcadian language, and at that time it meant the gate of God or the gate of the gods. Now, Babylon was a mighty, mighty superpower, and, it had, and although it suffered some defeats, and setbacks after the death of their king Hammurabi, under Neoplazer, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, the city was returned to its former glory. He renovated the city to cover over 2,200 acres of land and boasted some of the most beautiful and impressive structures in all of Mesopotamia, including the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which were considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And using the Tigris and Euphrates River, which was right there, they had a a very wealthy trade route between all the cities along that route of that river. So Babylon was very wealthy, very powerful. It also had a reputation of being a great seat of learning and culture. They had the formation of the, the Code of Hammurabi, right? You guys have heard of that? That predates the Mosaic Law. So they had all that they needed to establish a kingdom they worshipped over 2,000 gods in Babylon, in Babylon. In fact, all the cities along Mesopotamia had their own god. But the primary god of Babylon was Murdoch. Murdoch was their primary king or chief of all the other gods. Babylon, as I said, had the markings of a rival kingdom here on earth. It was even located right in the middle of where the Tower of Babel once stood. Right, by the way, where the throne of Satan was. This area has an evil spirit. It has a spirit, as we're going to read today in Revelation 17, the spirit of Babylon. And it was the spirit of Babel, the spirit of Babylon, that had been spreading throughout that area and still to this day spreads throughout the world. First and foremost, that spirit of Babylon is a spirit of rebellion against God. It's a spirit of the Antichrist. And that spirit even spread into the Roman Empire. Listen to what the Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter. She, who, who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So she refers to the church, the chosen one of Christ. Peter's saying that the church is sitting in Babylon. Well, Peter wasn't in Babylon when he wrote this verse. Peter was in Rome. So one of two things are possible. Either Peter uses Babylon as kind of a code name for Rome, 
to protect themselves because Rome was a very persecuted city at that time, or more probable, Peter was saying that the same spirit of Babylon, that same spirit of rebellion exists in Rome as it has since the Tower of Babel. And that's probably what Peter was referring to. Now, I'm not going to go into the history of Rome, but it lasted over a thousand years, the Empire of Rome. It had many different emperors, and they worshipped a pantheon of false gods, one of whom was Jupiter, and Jupiter was considered the king of the Roman gods. The Romans believed that Jupiter oversaw all the aspects of their life. And it was also believed that Jupiter was originated from the Greek god Zeus, it gets better. Greece happened to be another rival kingdom that Satan tried to establish here on this earth. So if we look at all our kings, God or the kings of the gods of our rival kingdoms, you have Murdoch is the king of Babylon, the king of the Babylonian gods. You have Jupiter, who's the king of the Roman gods. You have Zeus, the king of the Greek gods. You have Amun-Ra, the king of the Egyptian gods. You have Ashur, the king of the Assyrian gods, and Ahura Mazda, the king of the Persian gods. Now, these gods are all called by different names, but they're all the same god. They're all the same person. They're all Satan, every single one of them. All these rival kingdoms worship the same god. They just knew him by different names. Today, he's known as Shiva in Hinduism. He's known as Buddha in Buddhism, and he's known as Allah in Islam. Same god. It's the same one. Same God of this world. He just goes by different names, and he's still deceiving the world into thinking that they can worship any God at any time, that all gods are the same. They're not. These false gods are all Satan. Because you're worshiping false gods and bowing down to statues, you're not worshiping that statue that you think you're worshiping. You're worshiping the God that's behind that, and the God that's behind that is the God of this world, and that's Satan. One day soon, it won't be enough to just hide behind the scenes for Satan. One day soon, he's going to want the world to worship him as God. Not the statues, not all these other gods known by different names, but to worship him. So which God would you want to worship and serve? A God who has to disguise himself, rather, to get you to worship him? Or the God who was asked what his name was said, I am. Tell the people my name is I am, which means I am the one who existed. I am the existing one. I always was, always is, always it will be God, and there is none like me. That's the God that we want to serve. The God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, Satan has attempted since Babel to set up these rival kingdoms, but he's also tried to imitate the gospel message. He's tried to imitate the gospel message by presenting a counterfeit gospel message. A message that includes a virgin mother, a savior who was killed and resurrected. In Babylon, it was Semiramis and Tammuz. In Egypt, it was Isis and Osiris. In Greece, it was Aphrodite and Eros. In Rome, it was Venus and Cupid. You see, the deception of the world has been going on for a very long time very long time. This is nothing new. As Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. It's also interesting to know that every one of these kings, these rulers like Nimrod and Hammurabi and all of them, had a chief priest, a priest who would perform signs and wonders, a priest who would lead others to worship their false gods and to worship the king, just like the Holy Spirit 
inside of us leads us to worship our king, Jesus Christ. You know, Satan has never had an original thought in his life. He's always been a counterfeiter. Always. All the kingdoms Satan has tried to establish will one day lead to a new world order. We're seeing it happen right before our very eyes today. A one world order with a one world leader who will seduce all the people of the world to follow him. There will be a one world religion, whatever that is. And by the way, we'll look a little closer at that next week, Lord willing. One world leader. One, a false prophet who will lead the world to worship the Antichrist, to worship the beast. In short, Satan is going to counterfeit the Holy Trinity by introducing his own unholy trinity. Satan is God, the Antichrist is Jesus, and the false prophet is the Holy Spirit. And at that point, once that's introduced, the deception of the world will be complete and Satan will finally have established his rival kingdom here on earth. All of these centuries of plotting and planning will culminate in seven years of a kingdom. That's all he gets. You think about that. All these centuries he's been trying to do this, and what he gets out of it is seven years of a kingdom that won't be peaceful. And in the end, will be completely and totally destroyed. So what does Revelation 17 have to do with any of this? Well, Revelation 17 has its roots deeply in Babel. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome are all rooted right here in Babel. And that's where Revelation 17 begins. Revelation 17 tells us why judgment has to come be upon the, the mystery of Babylon or the harlot of Babylon. Chapter 18 of Revelation tells us about the destruction of that world system. Babylon is actually a physical place, right? It's modern-day Iraq, but it's also a religious or mystery Babylon. So there's a religious Babylon and there's a commercial Babylon. There's a spirit of Babylon and there's a real place. Just like Wall Street is a real place, but it's a financial system. Babylon's a real place, but it's also a metaphor for the world system around us. And it's like I said, in Revelation 18, we're going to look at the demise of the kingdom of Satan as it's finally put to an end. Now, in Revelation 14, if you remember, we read, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the vine of the wrath of her fornication. Revelation 14, 8. And if you remember, while we were there, we said that Babylon had not yet fallen, but it was as good as done. The world system that we live in today, the world system that we see all around us, has not fallen yet, but it is good as done. It will fall. In Revelation 16, we read, And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Revelation 16, 19. Listen, since Babel, since the Tower of Babel, this day has been coming. Some commentators have said that you can actually follow, trace, goodness and evil through Babylon and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is God-centered. Babylon is man-centered. Jerusalem is, this, is God's city. This is the city of God. Babylon is the city of man. And so if you trace the, the lineage of those two cities, you can actually trace the origins of good and evil. Man has, since the Garden of Eden, since Babel, wanted to be like God. Wasn't that the whole purpose 
of Satan tempting Adam and Eve in the garden, tempting Eve. You'll open your eyes, it'll make you like God, you'll be like God. We've built for ourselves a land, we've built lives for ourselves that are not dependent on God. You and I sitting here this morning are dependent on God. He's who we put our faith and hope and trust in. The rest of the world doesn't do that. The rest of the world's put their faith and hope and trust in the government, in a military, in a world system, in an economy. One day, that man, the whole world will depend on, the whole world will look to as a savior, is going to be the Antichrist. In the meantime, everyone on this planet, everyone who hears this message this morning has a choice to make. Do you want to be part of the kingdom of God, which is going to last forever? Or do you want to be part of the kingdom of Satan, which is already on its way out? The kingdom of God is above, the kingdom of Satan is below, and the kingdom of Satan is this world system. And Satan has made this world system so very attractive and very alluring, hasn't it? He's enticed many throughout the centuries to be part of his kingdom through the love of the things of this world. Jesus said in John's gospel, you are from above. You are from below, rather. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. John 8, verse 23. The only way to be part of the kingdom of God is to be born from above. We call it born again, but that's actually a poor translation. It really means to be born from above. If Jesus is from above, then isn't that where we want to be from? Isn't that we want, where we want to call home? Because to be of this world makes us, the Bible tells us, enemies of God. James wrote, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4, verse 4. Listen, no matter how beautiful, no matter how attractive, no matter how alluring this world is and the things of this world, it is coming to an end. The world system as we know it will one day cease to exist. So if you want to be part of this kingdom, the world order, it's not going to last. If you want to be part of the kingdom of God, that will stand for all eternity. So the question is, do you want to be part of this world the kingdom, or part of the kingdom of God? It, it's your choice. It's been mankind's choice since day one. But just know that one of those choices leads to eternal life, and the other one leads to eternal separation and death. So let's finally get into chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So one of the seven angels approaches John and shows him a judgment that's going to come against this world system. And that judgment, as I said already, we'll see carried out in chapter 18. In chapter 17, we're going to see why it needs to be destroyed. And the angel shows John this great harlot or prostitute that sits on many waters. Now, that word harlot or prostitute has been used to describe idolatry in the Bible. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 12, we read, My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 says, Have you, been, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up against every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. 
So God tells Israel that the idols that they are worshiping, the idols that they're worshiping on the hills, is like prostituting themselves. It's selling themselves to these other gods. Have you ever wondered why Israel, who knew the one true God, ever strayed from him, ever worshipped the, the gods of other nations? Greed. Greed, material wealth, was at the very root of their idol worship. These false gods in other nations represented fertility. It represented fertility not only for themselves, but for their fields and their, their crops and their livestock. The more crops and livestock that they owned, the wealthier they became. The more children that they have, the stronger they were. Listen, God doesn't work that way, does he? He never tells his followers that if we just believe enough, if we just have enough faith, you'll be prosperous. I know there's a lot of people who believe that, but it's just not biblical. So they turned to the gods of other nations because they believed that those gods would bring them economic gain. That's why Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and wealth. The harlot represents the wealth of the world, this world system, the wealth that the world is chasing every day. Remember, there's nothing inherently wrong with money, is there? We all need money to pay our bills. We all need money to pay our rent and our mortgages. Money can be used for good. It's the love of money, the Bible tells us, that's the root of all evil. It's the pursuit of money at the cost of everything else in your life that's evil. Notice where this harlot sits. She sits in many waters. This harlot is going to lead the people of the world to worship the Antichrist, who they believe is going to provide their prosperity for them, who they believe is going to save them from all the things that are going on. This world system that this harlot represents is part of what the harlot represents. The other side of that is going to be the religious side, which, as I said, we're going to look at more next week in our message. But what all this leads to is the ultimate idolatry, and that's the world, that's the world worshiping this statue of the Antichrist, or worshiping the Antichrist himself. It's what's going to cause the world to take his mark, because the world, at this point, cannot be without all the things that this mark will allow them to have. Imagine, you can't enter a food store unless you're scanned in. And that's why I personally believe the mark is digital somehow. I mean, we certainly have the technology for that. You can't enter your favorite store. You can't have access to your favorite store unless you walk past one of those scanners like I had to go through at the hospital. But how easy will that be? You walk in the store, you get scanned in, you have the mark, so you're good to go. You go around the store, you fill up your shopping cart, and all you have to do is leave. You go buy another scanner, and it automatically deducts it from your debit, from your debit card, from your bank account, because all of that is linked together. People are going to love that. They're going to love the ease of it. The technology isn't years away. The technology already exists today. This technology I'm talking about is already being used in a lot of places. And if I'm not mistaken, Amazon already uses it in some of their stores. What about ordering online? Well, we won't take the mark. We'll just order everything online. Has anyone here besides me ever been asked to scan your driver's license into a computer? 
I've done it. How much easier would that be just to put your hand or your forehead in front of your computer and they scan it in? Okay, you're good to go. You have the mark. You can order from our store. You can order from our online purchasing. You're not going to get away with anything. We're going to be monitored. We're going to be marked. We're going to be traced. Not we, but the people who are here during the tribulation. It's not that difficult to see how they can use any type of digital scanner to scan a mark if it is in fact digital before you purchase anything either in person or online. It's not that hard to see, is it? It wouldn't be that difficult to implement a system like this around the world because the technology already exists. And so we are well on our way to seeing this become a reality. And again, I say, if we're seeing the shadows of what's going to come, how close is the real thing? So this harlot sits on many waters. And we don't have to do a lot of interpreting to see where that, what that means because it the Bible tells us, right, in verse 15 of chapter 17, what it means. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, referring to the entire world. The worship of this world system is going to be worldwide, and that's why we have such disdain for the word globalism. Globalism in and of itself is not evil. It's not. Think about it. We are already a global people. You can get on a plane and fly anywhere in the world. We already exchange our currency with other countries. We all, most of us have families that live in other parts of the world. So we're already connected and united through that. Globalism could be used for good, especially if it united the world under the one true God, which we know is only going to happen when Jesus rules and reigns. It could also be used for good if it wiped out sex trafficking, if it wiped out abortion and a lot of the other evils we see in the world. But it's not going to be used for that. It's going to become evil because of what the Antichrist uses that system for. He's going to use it to enslave and entrap an entire world of people. He's going to use that system to incite worldwide rebellion against the one true God. It's exactly what we saw Nimrod do in the land of Shinar, which is currently modern-day Iraq. Look at verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So the leaders of the earth and the people of the earth have been made drunk with the delusions of her material wealth and her false religious system. The world is drunk on the, the deception of every, every ism there is, every false religion known to man, mankind at this point in history will de believe the lies, they will fall for the deception. Mankind's going to become drunk with the wealth of the world. And, and listen, one thing about people who have vast amounts of money, they always want more, don't they? This country, when this country was founded, this always amazes me, it was founded by men who a few times a year would come into Washington or wherever the seat of the capital was and they would take care of the affairs of the new nation. And the rest of the time they worked their fields. They worked their businesses. That's where they made their money. They made their money off their own hard work. Today, many leave Congress, the Senate, and the president much, presidency much wealthier than when they went in. Politics has become a way to become drunk with wealth. The more you have, the more you want. That's why you're never going to see term limits, ever. Because the 
have term limits would mean you would limit their ability to make tons of money. So you will never see it. The corruption in politics and around the world goes much deeper than you can ever imagine. Forget the deep state. It goes much deeper than that. This route goes all the way to Satan himself. It's the spirit of Babylon. It's the, the spirit of the Antichrist. It's all of that. That's how deep this goes. Satan has made this world and the things of this world alluring, attractive, and has lured many into this to where they're hooked now. They can't live any other way. They don't want to live any other way. They're trapped. Jesus said, the birds of the air have no nest. Foxes have no dens. The son of, rather, the birds of the air have nests. Foxes have dens. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That's not very attractive, is it? I'm going to follow a guy who doesn't have a place to stay. That must make us look pretty weak to the wealthy of this world, no? I mean, a life, we, as Christians, we, we want our lives submitted and surrendered to Jesus Christ. That doesn't look very attractive to the world around us, does it? Kind of makes us radicals, doesn't it? Look at verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So the, the woman on a beast, the woman riding a beast, is actually an ancient symbol. This has been around forever. In, in ancient times, she was known as Europa. She was a love interest of the Greek god Zeus. There's been a symbol of a woman riding a beast that's popped up in Rome, in Greece. And it, listen, by the way, it's a favorite symbol of the European Union today. This bull or beast that you see in the pictures was supposed to represent Zeus or the Roman god Jupiter. The symbolism that you see here is unmistakable. This harlot on this beast represents the love of false gods and idolatry. It represents fertility. It represents prosperity. It represents all that the false gods and false religions can bring to the world. And the ultimate false god, the ultimate false religion, will be the worship of the Antichrist. The ultimate idolatry will be him demanding worship of himself. The color of the beast, scarlet, also has meaning for us. It means both wealth and immorality. Any color in the ancient times, purple, scarlet, whatever it was, was very expensive to make. So the very color of it, scarlet, represents wealth. Wealth that these false religions have acquired over the years. And, and you don't have to look any further in some of these ornate buildings, these temples, these cathedrals around the world. Money has become the driving force behind a lot of these religions instead of the sharing of the gospel message. Scarlet can also be the color of sin. God said to his prophet Isaiah, Come now, let us debate our case, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall become white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall be like wool, Isaiah 1.18. The sin that this beast represents is the sin of idolatry, the worshiping of false gods, and man wanting to be his own god. And in the end, there will be one who will force all mankind to worship him and take his mark. It also tells us that this beast has seven heads, and Lord willing, we'll look at that a little, in a little more detail next week. But look at verse 4, our last verse. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having on her head a golden cup full of abominations and the, fierce, the filthiness, rather, of her fornication. So this picture that you're seeing on the screen right now is of a beautiful, attractive, alluring woman. And that's the point. That's the point. This world, these false religions around the world, are a, they're a, made to be attractive. They're made to entice people to it. It's made to be alluring so that you could be drawn into the deception. She represents wealth. She represents stability. She represents all the things that the world longs for. All the things that are counter to what Jesus has told us, right? These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The only peace we're going to find, even these, in these troubling times, is the peace that we have with Christ living inside of us. It's not a peace like the world gives because that peace fades away. That peace doesn't last. The peace we have of Christ in us lasts forever. Who wants, when you say that to the world, they would say, well, who wants tribulation? Who wants problems? We just want peace and security and safety. And they think that comes through wealth. That comes through power. And we believe it comes through Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my namesake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The world doesn't believe that. The world believes that whoever has the most toys when you die wins. To gain the world is what the goal is all about. This goes, every, it goes against, those words of Jesus goes against everything the world wants. The world wants to prosper. The world wants to get ahead. To the world, gain is profitable and loss is undesirable. The thought of sacrificing their peace and comfort to follow Jesus is not very attractive. It's not very alluring, is it? What we, what you and I practice, what you and I believe, that humbleness that we have, and if you want to know if I'm humble, just ask me. But what we believe is normal to us. The world looks at that and thinks we're crazy, thinks we're radicals. So the $64,000 question is, what is the end time religion? What does the harlot, the religion, we know that it's not only a commercial or financial system, it's also a religious system. And what does that look like? What is the end time religion? Well, you're going to have to come back next week to find out. But whatever it is, it's idol worship. And it's, it's designed to draw in the world and deceive the world. And it's going to lead many away from the worship of Jesus Christ. And perhaps, perhaps the end time religion incorporates all the religions of the world into one. So the world can then coexist. I mean, all the religions are the same, aren't they? We all worship the same God, don't we? The world religious system promises wealth and prosperity and peace and comfort to all who comply with it. Did you, did you catch that? In the end times, it will promise peace and security, wealth and safety for all who comply with it. If you don't comply, if you don't take the mark, if you don't worship the beast, 
It'll be hell on earth for you. But it's better than an eternity in hell for taking that mark. You know what? If you can't reach your loved ones through the gospel message, at least tell them, do not take the mark. Under any circumstances, no matter what it means, no matter what it costs you, do not take the mark. We talked about wealth a lot here today, and I don't want you to be fooled by that word wealth, because wealth is relative, isn't it? I mean, wealth in some parts of the world is a place to lay your head in a cell phone. That's not wealth to us. Wealth in the tribulation period could be a refrigerator filled with food, a full-time job, and a place to live. That's what you may consider wealth. And the only way you're going to have that is by giving your soul to Satan. The harlot is sitting there. She's among the people of the world saying, come, come to me, come to me, be warmed to be filled. Do you want to be warmed? Do you want to be filled? Come to me. I can provide that for you. Come, give me your soul. Come and worship that statue. Come and worship our leader. Come and worship the Savior of the world. It's going to be hard for people to not fall for that deception. But it should come with a warning, shouldn't it? Just be warned when you do, you'll become a slave to the Antichrist. You'll become a slave and you will lose your soul for all eternity. You will drink of that undiluted cup of God's wrath because you have worshipped the beast and taken his mark. So again I say, in no circumstances, if you are here during the tribulation, do not take the mark of the beast. Hopefully, prayerfully, you can avoid all that. And the Lord's given us a way to avoid all that. He's made it, in fact, as simple as ABC. It's like a childlike introduction to how to be saved. A is admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God, because that's exactly what the Bible tells us. There is none righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, all of us. We've all missed the mark. You can say that you're a good person. You might even be a good person. But based on what I just told you, based on those two verses in the Bible, there are no good, not one. We need a Savior. Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through, not through any false god, not through any religion, not through any religious system. The only way to heaven, the only way to be saved is through Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23. And the next step then is B, believe. Believe with your heart. Believe with your heart that, that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, that he's seated today at the right hand of God the Father, just waiting, just waiting for the Father to say, Son, it's time. Go get your bride. He's coming again. Nothing is going to prevent that. Nobody who sits on, 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 in Washington, nobody who sits in China, nobody who sits in Russia is going to prevent that from happening. He's coming again to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul wrote, For with the heart one believes in the righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. I can tell you that I have never one day in my life regretted giving my heart to Jesus Christ. Ever. And so once you admit you're a sinner, you repent of your sin, and you've turned to Jesus, you admit that you can't do this on your own, and you acknowledge that Jesus has died for your sins, then we come to see. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And that's exactly what Paul writes to the Romans, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. Listen, there's nothing you can't be saved from. There's only one thing that you cannot be saved from, and that's if you die in your sin without submitting and surrendering to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only sin you cannot be forgiven of. Once you, leave, once you close your eyes, once you take a breath on this earth for the last time, it's too late. And if you're alive during the tribulation, and God help you if you are, and you don't know Jesus Christ, once his foot steps on that Mount of Olives, once he returns, it is too late. You'll have a chance. God loves you enough to say that even if you don't know him now, even through the tribulation, he gives you a chance. He wants none to perish, no, not one. Although I don't know anybody who would knowingly, willingly want to go through the tribulation after all we've read in, in Revelation. It's going to be a horrible time. Jesus said, I've shortened the days because if I don't do that, there is no flesh on this earth that will survive the terrible persecution and, and, and destruction that's going to come upon this earth. Do you realize that without Jesus Christ, we are enemies of God? Paul wrote, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, which much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If you surrender to Jesus Christ today as Lord and Savior, you will be reconciled to God. No longer an enemy of God, but you'll be an heir to the kingdom of heaven. No longer part of this world system but part of the kingdom of heaven. Your home will no longer be here. It will be in heaven. Through Jesus, you could be rectified, reconciled, sanctified, justified, washed clean of all your sin, past, present, and future. And if that's what you want with all your heart, then the Bible makes it very simple for us. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Give your heart to him today. Make that decision that comes from deep inside, not just an emotional decision, not just because your parents are saved or because your whoever, Uncle Vito, is saved. It doesn't matter. You have to come to the Lord. You have to submit your life to him. You have to surrender your will to him. This has to be your decision. Please stand. Please bow your heads. And listen, if you're here with us this morning and you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you're on the other side of these cameras and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, well, everyone's head is bowed. I'm just going to ask you to slip up your hand. Just slip up your hand. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You put your hand down. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. It's prayer... It's not the prayer. It's not the words of the prayer. It's what you feel inside. Maybe you've given your heart to Jesus a long time ago and you've drifted away from him. This is the time. We're living in a time right now, unlike any other time in our history, where, except for maybe during Rome, during the persecution, where it is time to, to walk with the Lord, to get things straight with the Lord, to get your life right with Jesus Christ. And that may be you today, that you've walked away from him. Pray this prayer. Rededicate your life to Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him as Lord and Savior, pray this prayer as well. And if you mean it with your heart, from deep down in your heart, it's not just a decision you're making with your head today, but one that you deeply feel moved in your heart to make, you will be saved. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner. 
I can't save myself. I need you, Lord. I surrender my will to you. I submit my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Be my Lord and Savior. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. And if you've prayed that prayer today, you are part of the kingdom of heaven, no longer part of this world. And listen, we always say, we'll either see you here or we'll see you in the air. God bless you guys.